right. Hey, today we are beginning a brand new uh, series for this summer called We Still Believe. So welcome to church this morning. It's great to be together. I'm Glenn Barnes, uh, another one of the pastors here, and um, I'm really excited uh, to dig into this material together. So hopefully you have your Bible with you. Hopefully you received your message notes when you came in. I'm going to be working us through really a lot of material today, um, and so we'd love for you to follow along in that way. Now, uh, we are going to be just taking a kind of a short intermission for our study in the book of Romans. Uh, We will come back to uh, Romans later in August for the exciting conclusion of the book, and uh, I can't wait to see how it ends. Uh, But for these next six weeks, we're going to dive into some really important topics. And they're important anyways, but they're especially important in the days that we live in these days. You know, it's been said that we live in the information age, right? These days that we live in, there has never been more information available to us coming at us in all ways, at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, uh, 365 days a year. And so um, we have all of that information coming at us. The problem is with all of that information that is coming at us, that means there are more opinions. That means there are more theories. There are more ideas that are out there. And it tends to be in this day that we live that the loudest, and uh, the most kind of maybe controversial, the most extreme or opinionated are the ideas that get the most attention. But with all of this information and with all of these ideas that are coming at us, the question then becomes, how do I find the truth? How do I know what is really true? In fact, it's been said that we are drowning in information, but we're starving for truth. So we live in the information age. Uh, It's also been said, and we know to be true, that we live in what is known as the age of relativism. Uh, Relativism has really been the dominant worldview um, in the Western world for uh, a number of years now. And this intersection of the information age and the age of relativism has created this kind of perfect storm for an erosion of the truth. It's left behind this vacuum of people knowing, well, what do I still believe? And what can I hold on to? What do I still believe? Now, according to to Webster, uh, the definition of relativism, relativism is this. It's the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality, knowledge, truth, and morality, they exist, but they exist in relation to culture and society and are not absolute. So I know that's hard to follow, but basically this is what it's saying. It's saying that there are no, um, while there are Uh, There are morals and there are truths, it says. They are attached to, basically, uh, and defined by the current culture. So whatever's kind of trending on Twitter, you know, can become the truth of the day. So even morality and what's right and what's wrong is not necessarily based on something that's bigger than us or outside of us or something that's eternal, but it's based on kind of the popular and the current opinions of the culture. Uh, So for instance, we know um, a few years ago, there was a a study done uh, by the Barna Research Group, and they told us what most people have known for a long time, which there is kind of a new moral code in our world. And this moral code is based more on relativism, on self-fulfillment, than it is based on kind of absolute truth. So for instance, they made some statements, and then they asked people to agree or disagree with these statements. And kind of at the top of the list was this statement that said, 
people should not criticize someone else's lifestyle. People should not criticize someone else's lifestyle. And 89% are nine out of 10 people listed at that as perhaps the highest moral absolute. 76% of Christians also agreed with that. Now, we don't want to criticize someone else's lifestyle. That's not the thing. But is that the highest moral code? It kind of reminds me of this meme. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know if you can read it there, but it's how people read the, world, uh, the Bible in our world today. And it's Matthew chapter seven. And Matthew chapter seven, the opening two words are judge not. And they've left those two words and scribbled everything else out. And it's not like those words judge not are not important, but they are not the only words. And that's been listed as kind of the highest moral value. Another one is this. It says to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire the most. So whatever you desire, that's where you're going to find fulfillment. And again, uh, almost nine out of 10 uh, adults agreed with that and 72% of Christians. And the question is, how is the, the highest goal, the uh, highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Basically, life is all about happiness and just pursuing whatever uh, I want. Uh, another one is people believe that whatever they can, can believe, whatever they want, as long as those beliefs don't affect someone else. And so here is the thing. Most people like this idea of relativism. And, and you know, they obviously agree with those kind of things. Most people like the idea of relativism until they don't meaning they like it as a theory, but when it becomes a reality, then it gets a, a little difficult for people. They like, every, you know, they like their truth to be fluid, but they want everybody else's to line up with theirs. So for instance, if your car breaks down uh, and you need to go get your car fixed, you're not gonna go online and look up a Yelp review for a mechanic and you know, find the Yelp review that says, you know, this person um, really is uh, self-fulfilled and you know, they really uh, take a very inclusive approach to these things. No, what you're gonna look for is someone who says, I can find the problem and I can fix it, right? Or if you're loved one, or if you need a surgery, you're not going to go to the doctor and, and look for someone who's just going to follow her heart. You know, when it comes to that saving uh, procedure, you want a doctor who's going to adhere to the medical facts of the evidence to guide that surgery. So over these next six weeks, we're going to look at six different beliefs that are a part of historic Christianity, and yet they're things that one way or another our culture has said either are no longer true or no longer are relevant or at the very least old-fashioned and out of touch. Now, right up front, I want to say something. I want to be very careful here because it's especially easy in these days of culture wars for Christians to come off as just kind of these grumpy people, that they just come off as uh, always critical, always dismissive of people that don't agree with them. And if you know, someone doesn't see it my way, I'm going to be mean or I'm going to be critical of them. Uh, the, the, when the church is critical and dismissive, we've seen the results of that. The results of that are primarily people, and especially younger people, leaving the church in droves and saying, I don't want to be a part of that. That is not the environment that we are looking to create here. This is not about me being some grumpy old guy and pointing the finger and saying, this is what is wrong with the world today. What we want to do, the goal is not to dismiss or belittle anyone. The goal is to take a thoughtful approach a reasoned approach, and ultimately to come to these six issues and ask the question, what does the Bible say about these things? And as Christians, do we have something that, that we can stand on to say, yes, we still believe these things? 
And how do I live these things out with compassion and truth and faith? So for the next six weeks, our topics are going to be, uh, today we're going to look at we still believe that Jesus is the way. We are going to look that we still believe that all life is valuable. We still believe that sex is sacred. We still believe that racism is wrong. We still believe that family matters. And we still believe that God cares for the whole world or God has the whole world in his hand. And so that's going to be our little intermission um, from the book of Romans for this series. All right, well, let's jump into today's topic, which is we still believe that Jesus is the way. Now, ironically, even in this day of relativism, uh, Jesus remains fairly popular, right? I talk to people all the time, and maybe you do too, who, who really like what they know of Jesus. They liked the idea that he was kind, he was welcoming, he spoke truth to power, he taught love for all, even your enemy, he offers a, a spiritual peace to a world that desperately needs a spiritual peace. And all of those things are, are true. The problem is that not only uh, those are not the only things that we know about Jesus. And we're not really supposed to just pick and choose the things that we say, well, I like this stuff and I don't like this stuff, so I'm going to grab a hold of this. So we say, how do we hold on to uh, who Jesus really says that he is? And for me, the example of Jesus as friend of, of sinner and accepting of people is something that I deeply aspire to in my life. But we also see that Jesus said some things that can be categorized as pretty exclusive. So let's start by taking a look at just some of those things that Jesus says that many people can, could consider and really are uh, relatively exclusive things. So Jesus said this. These are some statements that can be considered pretty exclusive. In Matthew chapter 7, which by the way is the same chapter that begins judge not, Jesus says this, wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to life right? So narrow is the road. That can be an exclusive thing. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So in other words, the way to resurrection and life is through me. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Not a bunch of other ways, but follow me. That's an exclusive thing that Jesus says. In Matthew 7, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. So Jesus says the difference between a wise and a foolish man is what you do with my words. That's a fairly exclusive thing that Jesus says. And perhaps the most kind of exclusive thing that, that Jesus says is actually given as words of hope and, and encouragement to his disciples when they are really struggling. And he, Jesus is coming to the end of his life and he gathers together with his disciples in the upper room and he tells them that I'm going away, I'm going to, going to the cross and you know, I'm going to be resurrected, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, but things are, are going to change. Um, and so to encourage them in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and this is kind of our key passage, if you wanted to follow along in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, we read this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. 
and you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. And aren't you glad that Thomas speaks up and he answers, asks that question. Jesus, this sounds good, this way of heaven that you're talking about, but how can we know the way? Someone's gonna have to tell us the way, you know, give me an address, I'll put it in my phone so I can get there, just something so that I can know the way. And Jesus answers famously this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So such an exclusive and narrow statement may surprise people, it may confuse, it may even offend people, but Jesus said it nonetheless. And one of the things we see is that the New Testament never presents Jesus as a way to the Father. The New Testament consistently presents Jesus as the way to God. And so we see this in Jesus's words, but even Jesus's followers, many of them who were skeptical at first, some that were even hostile towards him, when they really come to understand and see what he's all about, they also make some pretty incredible claims about uh, Jesus. So these are some of the things that his followers said that can also be considered very bold. For instance, Luke. Luke was uh, one of the the followers of Jesus. He was a medical doctor. He was probably the most, um, kind of gives the most attention to detail and specifics and those kind of things. This is what he says. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. That's why we sing these songs, to the name of Jesus. Uh, Paul, who was hostile to uh, Christ for a long time, said this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. That's the one mediator. That's one way is what Paul says. The apostle John, who was there on that night when Jesus first said the thing about the way, the truth, and the life, decades later, he would say it like this in his own words. This is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Peter, who was one of Jesus's most impulsive and up and down uh, disciples, still understands the reality of Jesus as the way. There's a time when uh, Jesus says some hard things, some narrow things, and a lot of people start to to leave. And Jesus looks at Peter and the other disciples. He says, how about you? Are you guys going to leave too? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one. You alone are the one that has the words of eternal life. Later on, when pushed to Describe who he believes that Jesus is. Peter says it like this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Even Jesus' own half-brother, James, says this, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've always said, for a person's brother to admit that they are the, the Lord, that you are a servant, you know, for me to say that I'm a servant of my brother, they better have done something very miraculous, almost like they rose from the dead. And that's exactly the point. For Jesus's followers to make such exclusive claims, and I listed all those because I want us to see, for his followers to make such exclusive claims, there must have been something very unique about him. There must have been something that that required them or, or led them or compelled them to say, no, Jesus is not a way, but Jesus is the way. Because in this day of relativism that we live in, religion still is a a topic. People still like to talk about religion. But kind of the most common 
approach to religion in the Western world, in this area of relativism, is that it's kind of like you're climbing the mountain and all of the different roads are going to get you to the top of the mountain. They're different ways, but they all lead to the same place. And that's kind of the most common uh, opinion about religion. You see it in kind of bumper stickers and things like this that say coexist or tolerance or those kind of things. Because whether you're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Sikh or Mormon or some combination of all of these things, the point that they make is that all religions really lead to the same place. And they all have the same message, basically, right? All religions really say the same thing, to love your neighbor, to be a good person, to, you know, to do uh, those kind of things. Now, to some extent, I agree with that. We are certainly meant to coexist in peace with all different people. Jesus taught that very clearly. And so we're, we're taught to, to, you know, to, to live at peace. I also think that most world religions, at least the things that I know about them, there are good things that can be found in, in most world religions. You know, there are things that we would agree to and say that, that, that they are true. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the followings that they do around the world. But what we do see is that when it comes to the biggest things, how do I know God? How do I find purpose in my life? How do I find peace? What about eternal life? Those kind of things. All religions can't lead to the same place because they contradict each other, right? The the religions are mutually exclusive. They both can't be true because they say different things. So for instance, me and my neighbor who is Muslim, we, you know, share a lot of things in common and we, you know, have a friendship and I care about him and his family. He cares about me and and my family. We often have common ground, but on the core issues, the deepest stuff of how do you know God? How do you, how do you find the way to security? What's the way? What's the truth? What's the life? We are going to disagree because we see you know, the the, the religions describe it differently. Now, my deep prayer and conversation with him is that one day he would come to understand what his holy scriptures say about Jesus. They say that Jesus is a prophet, that his words should be read. And it's my prayer that he would read the actual words of Jesus and see the kind of things that we were just talking about. And so for us to make these exclusive claims about Jesus, because I get it, those are exclusive things that I'm saying here. For us to make those kind of exclusive claims, there must be some things that are pretty unique about him, right? There must be some things that were different about Jesus than any other religion or any other spiritual pathway. And so what are those unique things. And what I want to do for the rest of our short time together is kind of walk us through a number of these. This is not an exclusive list, um, but these are seven things and these uniquenesses. If in fact these things are true, we can say, you know, this is why we can say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what is the uniqueness of what Jesus offers? And I want to list seven of these. Hopefully you can follow along in your notes. I'm not going to look at all the scriptures, uh, but you have them all there. So uh, Jesus offers another way. Jesus offers another way. The uniqueness that Jesus offers, first of all, is he is God 
in human flesh. That is a unique claim about Jesus. What the book of John says is that in the beginning, so predated, pre-existent, before anything else was created, there was the Word who was, was, was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. We call this the incarnation. That is a unique offer that Jesus gives. Philippians 2 says it like this, Jesus, being in very nature God, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he took on the nature of a servant. So he was God, but he took on the nature of human flesh. Right after Jesus makes this bold claim in John chapter 6, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, verse 6, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas asks this question, and then it goes on from there. He has another disciple, this time uh, Philip, who asks the question. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, and if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You do know my father and you have seen him. And Philip is still a little slow on the intake. And he says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is all about, you look at Jesus because of this unique claim that Jesus was God in human flesh. That's one of the unique things we see about Jesus. Another unique thing is this. He gives forgiveness through his payment for our sin. He came to exchange an innocent life for a guilty one. And not just an innocent life, but God in the flesh, giving up his innocent life for a guilty life, which is mine. And he offers that as a way for us to have our sins forgiven, which is unique. That is a concept that is unique in in the faith journey out there. By the way, this has been the message that we have come back to time and time again in our study of Romans. We've gone through 11 chapters of Romans where we see, Romans, where we see the, the message of the gospel uh, being put forth, uh, put forth front and center time and time again. And the message in the gospel or the message of the gospel that we see in places like Romans is this, that uh, it says the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. Uh, A third thing that is unique to Jesus is that he offers grace. You know, every other religion says that it's all about the things that you do, right? It's all about the things uh, that that you have to do to earn your way to heaven, to achieve nirvana, to somehow satisfy karma or whatever uh, you're trying to do there. But while other religions say do, Jesus uniquely offers a perspective that he has done it on our behalf. They say do. He says it is done through me. Jesus says my work on the cross is enough and it's my free gift to you. Now, if you think this through, you say, well, I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. That doesn't seem right. That's what grace is. God's gift to us when we don't deserve it. And this concept of grace is a gospel idea. This idea of of grace is a Jesus idea. And it's a uniqueness that he offers. 
He also offers a relationship, a way to a personal relationship with God. Now, I want to be clear that those exact words, this idea of personal relationship um, with, with God, uh, that, that that is not, those words are not necessarily found in, in the Bible. But this idea you find in the Bible from beginning to end, God wants to be in relationship with people that he uniquely made in his image. So not only can we be forgiven and made right with God, but, but we can know him and we can be in relationship with him. That's why Jesus makes this offer. He says, in my father's house. And, and it's, it's a real place with the real father. And you can come and you can go there and you can be in relationship with God. This was the design from the very beginning. Adam and Eve walked with God in fellowship in the garden before sin destroys that. But when you get to the very end of the Bible, what do you see? You see that relationship restored right? And so again, the promise is that I will be their God and they will be my people and we will walk together. Jesus offers a way to actually have, not only have our sins forgiven, but to have a relationship with God. Fifth thing that Jesus offers, and this is the most unique of them all, is the resurrection from the dead, right? Really all the others derive their power and authority from Jesus's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was the greatest event of all of human history, Right? And you may say, well, you know, the cross was really a, a pretty big deal too. But the reality is, is that the cross, as powerful as it is, gets its power, derives its power from the resurrection. The resurrection or the cross without the resurrection really is very em- empty. The resurrection puts the power in the cross. And the resurrection calls us from death back up to life. The cross cancels our debt, but the resurrection calls us to live an abundant life. And it's the promise of resurrection from the dead one day, but also to live resurrection life today. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll have this. And so that is a unique claim. Sixth unique claim is he gives us the Holy Spirit. So again, in John chapter 14, kind of this passage we've been coming back to time and time again, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You see me, you see the Father. Then he makes this other bold claim. He says, when I go away, though I am God with you in flesh, I am going to send another one like me. I am going to send God Spirit to indwell you, to live inside of me, to live inside of you. And this is unique claim right? His spirit living inside of us to give us comfort, to give us guidance, to give us counsel, to to give us the power that we need to stand up to the difficult things of life. No other religion gives a promise like that. And then the last one that I want us to look at, and I want to slow down here for a minute and kind of wrap up with this last one, is the seventh thing that is unique that Jesus offers, is Jesus offers a countercultural way to live, we want to call this the way of Jesus, the countercultural way of Jesus. You see, we love to talk as Christians about this kind of stuff that we still believe. We still believe that Jesus is the only way. And because of all of those uniqueness and all of those things and more that I just talked about there, we can have great trust that Jesus is the way. But I think perhaps the most powerful argument to a watching world is not for us to stand up front and recount all the reasons that we think that Jesus is the way. I think the powerful argument that our world is looking for these days is not just arguments for why Jesus is the way, but they're looking for someone to live out the way of Jesus, which is different from any 
other way. And what do I mean by that? You see, the way of Jesus is dramatically counter culture. It goes against the cultural norms. We talked earlier about that we live in this idea of the age of relativism. We live in the age of relativism. And so uh, the kind of the so what answer to this is because we live in the age of relativism to give an answer that Jesus is the way is the appropriate thing. But there is another cultural move that has been going through our, our, our world, and not just the United States, but going all around the world. And it's sometimes called the age of outrage the age of outrage. And there's this anger and this frustration and and the age of outrage is defined by increased levels of polarization and tribalism. And the idea is this. The idea is just not my side is right and, you know, your side is wrong and let's debate this. The idea is this. My side is right and your side is stupid. And my side is right, and your side is bad and is evil. And we see this kind of cultural move that people are experiencing more and more in this age of outrage. And everything's a fight, and everything's a battle, and people are weary. And in this age of outrage, just as the message to relativism needs to be that Jesus is the way, the message of the church in the age of outrage needs, uh, outrage needs to be that there is a different way to live And it is the way of Jesus. Jonathan Perkins, a longtime civil rights leader who lived through the the race wars of the 50s and 60s, and he's in his, I think he's in his 90s now. Um, He said, you know what? Talking about these days that we live in, he says, never before have I seen hate turned into a virtue. And so here's, uh, here's the problem with that. It's so important for our lives, and it's so important for the future of the church for us to understand this that the world is looking for people to live out not just this idea that Jesus is the way, but live out the way of Jesus, which is different. Because our hearts break when we look around our society and we look around and we see that the things that are happening in our world, our hearts are, are broken. Even if you take it from just a, a faith perspective, for the first time in the United States history, less than half of the, the population attends church. First time in American history, less than 50% uh, attend church. We've been hearing for years that, you know, somewhere around half of the young people that are raised up in a Christian church are one day going to walk away and reject that. In fact, one of the kind of the common words that you hear out there in kind of the faith discussion these days is the term exvangelical. Exvangelical. This is someone who says, well, I used to be evangelical. Evangelical basically means that I believe the gospel is true. I believe in the Bible. I believe in personal salvation. I believe in sharing my faith. So kind of historic Christianity. This term exvangelical says I used to be that, but now I'm not. And I've chosen to reject that and go another way. And here's the thing that's just fascinating to me. Because when you see people really talk about why they're leaving behind the faith and and going away, rarely do they talk about their beliefs changing. Now, that doesn't mean that their beliefs haven't changed, but they rarely say, you know, I stopped believing in the incarnation, or I stopped believing that Jesus forgives sins, or I stopped believing in the the resurrection. You see, the, the issue is not a belief problem. The issue is a behavior problem. What they say in one form or another is, I don't see the way of Jesus really being lived out or being made, uh, making a difference in the world. And people are longing for that. People are longing for not just a truth to, to believe in, but a truth to be lived out that impacts their life. And that's why the way of Jesus is so important. 
The way of Jesus is countercultural, and it begs this question. This is kind of the key question for the morning and maybe for this whole series. The question is this, are you and am I being shaped more by our culture than we are by Christ? What's forming my ideas? What's guiding my heart? What's, you know, what, what am I passionate about? What are the things that I think about? And are those things being guided more by the culture or are they being guided by Christ? Am I more discipled by social media and cable news? Or am I more discipled by the words of Christ that are different than our culture? Because especially in this age of outrage that we live, our culture says things like this. Our, our culture says uh, the, 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 the way to the top is to be assertive and to demand your rights. It, it says the way is, is to be combative and, you know, you got to fight every battle and you got to win all those things and, and you got to win at all costs. And that's kind of the popular message of the culture. And yet Jesus, in one of the few places that he takes a minute and describes himself, where he tells us about his personality and the way that he interacts with people, one of the few places he does that is in Matthew chapter 11. And this is how Jesus describes his personality. He says, come to me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. That's different than what our culture says. So our culture says, be assertive. The way of Christ says, be selfless. The way of culture says, be combative. The way of Christ says, I'm going to be sacrificial. The way of of our culture says, win at all costs. The way of Jesus says, I am going to serve at all costs and I am even going to lay down my life. And one of the reasons that we can say that Jesus is the way and this exclusive claim one of the ways that's going to give us the, the, the validity and the, the, you know, the truth behind this argument that Jesus is the way is people need to be able to look and say, well, what about the way of Jesus? Are his people living it out through humility, through sacrifice, through service? We still believe that Jesus is a way. That is a big and a bold claim. In fact, as I wrap up here, as I think about this claim that Jesus is the way. I was thinking a little bit about this funnel because there's going to be a lot of people that hear that idea that Jesus is the way and they're going to say it just, it just, it seems so narrow, right? It seems so, so slim. It seems so narrow, so exclusive. And it is. Jesus is the name above all names. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who was resurrected. He has the right to make exclusive claims. But someone will look at that and it say, it just seems so narrow, this, this, this pathway. For every person who says that the way of Jesus seems so narrow, here's what I want to do. I want them to see the full funnel. And I want them to see that the other side is also connected to Jesus. Because the way of truth is very narrow. But the invitation that Jesus gives is very wide. The truth is narrow, but the gospel is wide. Jesus didn't say all these things to push people away and to, to, you know, to make people not find their way on the path. Jesus said all these things because he wanted to throw wide the gates of heaven and let as many people from every tribe and nation and tongue and age and gender and all different people to find the way of life. And so while the truth is narrow, the gospel is wide. And he invites all of us, every person, to come and find the way and the truth and the life through his life. All right, let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the wonder of the gospel. Lord, such a narrow message grounded in truth and yet so full of love and invitation for all people to come.
Lord, I, I pray for your church in these days that we live. Lord, these are difficult times. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of doubt. I pray, Lord, that your church would be a voice of truth and a voice of love. So help us, Lord, to not only to live out the, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, but also to live out the way of Jesus. So I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. I, Lord, I pray for those that are maybe struggling with some of these things. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to know your truth. And as your word says, that the truth would set us free. We commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.